You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. I'm feeling good today. Yeah. I went to jujitsu on my lunch break. You're dedicated. Uh, right before this recording i love to do it fridays are my favorite because i get to wake up super early start work at 6 30 i'm gonna go to jujitsu at 12 and then i'll do some work after that so i love it and i was talking with my friend austin powers that's that can't be a real it's name. his real name his real name uh we call him ap in the gym because it's does he dress like he's from the 70s no he doesn't but he does have a tattoo of austin powers the character oh, on his on his arm um, you kind of got to, right? You, you almost have to. You All right. Know? Yeah. I mean, if my name was Shrek, <laughs> I'd do that, you know, lean into it. Um, and he was talking with me about preparing for a fight that he has. He has an MMA fight next Friday, um, in Arlington. And he was saying, yeah, you know, I'm, I gotta be careful about who my training partners are right now. Cause I'm trying to up the intensity. Like I don't want to roll with, I don't want to train with people who aren't going to help me prepare for, for this fight because it's going to be a real fight you know it's not right it's right. not we're not playing around and 100 well, percent yeah act, yeah and he says you know some people i just i can't mess with them man i can't i can't i can't train with them because they they you know they want to play around they're goof around they don't want to go hard they don't want to be intense like I, i'm not about that and he goes um and you man you helped me out a lot and he goes i said why oh Nice I was like, well, I don't fight. I just yeah. do jujitsu. Right. I'm not trying to get punched in the face. Of course. And he says, well, because you are an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you hear that a lot? I get, yeah, it's a great compliment. <laughs> and he says, he goes, you're an asshole. I said, oh, man, okay. <laughs> so why? He goes, because you were, you were just so mean to me when I started. And I was like, you're damn right. Are you, are you, you're damn right. I mean, you. mean, of course I'm not, here's the thing. You come into this training environment where we're, it's a combat sport. Okay. All we right. are doing combat. We are not training golf. We are not training tennis. We are training to fight. So I'm not going to, I can't train any other way than full speed because a fight is not going to be half speed. A fight's okay. not going to be playful. A fight's going to be real. So when, when we're training, there has, there is a high degree of trust between training partners that has to be there that you can't understand if you haven't done it, right? If I'm training, this guy who I'm training with might put his arms around my neck and squeeze until the blood gets cut off to my brain. He might twist my arm behind my back until my bones are about ready to pop. And if I tap on him, just a little light tap, 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 I trust that he's going to let go. There's not a referee when we're training. There's not anybody watching half the time. So I've got to trust this person a lot. And so do they have to trust me that I'm not going to rip their knee and tear their ACL, that I'm not going to intentionally try to hurt them. And so for me to come in and I don't know this person who I'm training with, I'm not going to let them get into 
a, a position that's advantageous when they haven't built that trust up with me to where I know they're not going to hurt me. I'm going to protect myself just like I would protect myself if I'm in a real fight. Now I'm not going to be dirty. I'm not going to try to hurt them, but I'm going to be very on my P's and Q's to make sure that I'm safe. Now, after a while, if I know somebody and we've built up rapport and we've been training together for a year or two or more, and I know them and we're friends, yeah, maybe I'll be playful. Maybe I'll maybe I'll smack talk a little bit while we're training to to be funny. Maybe maybe I can be a little bit more relaxed, still train with intensity. So when I first met AP, um, you know, we're training, we're hardcore going at it, and I'm not letting him do things that don't work. I'm not gonna do things that don't work on him. I'm not gonna try technique that's lazy or or ineffective, ineffective just because it's fun. No, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna really, really go at it with him. And um, I used to try to beat him up all the time. And yeah. now, guess what? He'll beat me up sometimes. Yeah. Good. He goes, yeah, man, you helped me out. You made it. You made it tough on me. You made it hard on me. And I appreciate that. And I took that as a very big yeah. compliment. Um, and if I thought of that today because I was taking this Enneagram test. I had never taken an Enneagram test. Um, Enneagram, you know, personality assessment. I'm taking the test and I'm looking at the questions and a good number of the questions <laughs> made me feel so uncomfortable because they were like, um, I often make people feel welcome. You're like, never. And I was like, never. <laughs> Clearly not after this conversation am I going to sit here and say I make people feel welcome. Or I go out of my way to make people feel included. I was like, dang, I don't do that. Um, but I don't like that about myself. I don't like that. I don't make people feel welcome, but I'm recognized, especially when faced with the question, I don't do that. Right. And for a second, I was down on myself. I said, geez, man, that's not good. Maybe I could work on that at the same time in very specific contexts, not in general broadly, but in some contexts, like a gym where we're learning to fight. Yeah, you know what? I don't want to make you feel welcome. You're getting some positive reinforcement. I want you to feel unwelcome <laughs> when you're trying to fight my ass. Was, was this a conscious decision to be less welcoming, or do you think that that was just your natural tendency coming out? It's a conscious decision. If I catch you off the mat in the locker room, I'll, I'll be like, hey, what's up? Yeah. But if I don't know you, I don't even know your first name, yeah. and you come and you're, we're trying to roll and you're playing and joking around, yeah. or you're trying some whack technique on me, you know, you're just doing some goofy stuff. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you're going, you're too, you're flailing too much because you don't really know your technique and your ego is showing. You're trying to kick my butt right. when you've been training six days right. and you don't know anything. Right. Mm-mm. I'm going to be very unwelcoming <laughs> because you're either going to not show up or you're going to learn and you're going to get good. And that's what he did. He get, He's very good now and he's going to go out there and he's going to kick some guy's house on next Friday. And I'm going to be very happy in the stands cheering him on. So I mean, I'm just some guy at this gym. I'm not, I don't know anything, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to be put in a position to have some Yahoo walk off the street and, and tear my knee up in half because I let him get in a position. Yeah. Okay. You know, yeah, I get it. Or I let him twist my arm behind my back just because, oh, you know, you don't want to be I rude. I don't know. I don't trust you. Because you don't want to be rude. Yeah. Because I don't want to be rude. You know, I want to make him feel like he's doing good. Uh uh-uh. uh. Nope. I'll yeah. let you. I'll let you feel like you're doing good somewhere else. So I learned a lot about myself doing that Enneagram test. I learned a whole heck of a lot more talking to our guest, Tyler Zock. He's a certified Enneagram coach, a pastor, author, and co-founder of One Hope Church in Omaha. 
He trains business teams to grow in self-knowledge, empathy, and productivity using the Enneagram. You can find him on Instagram at Gospel for Enneagram, and you can find his book on um, or book series on individual Enneagram types on his website, gospelforenneagram.com, where he tailors the message of the gospel based on your unique Enneagram type. Uh, we talked about the history and the origination of the Enneagram, uh, values versus virtues, and challenging the weaknesses of your type, leaning into the strengths. I learned a heck of a lot, um, was forced to be self-reflective, and I know that you are going to learn something too. My name's Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. <laughs> Tyler, glad you're here. Sean. Hey, how's it going? Well, Good. he's Sean, I'm Sanger, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, did did Morgan tell you I've I been was called the a lot? Looking? I've been called a lot worse. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Great to meet you guys, and I'm excited to be on the show. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm glad you're here. I'm not glad that I took the Enneagram test because it was super self-reflective and uncomfortable. It is. <laughs> and I'm sitting there answering these questions, and it's like, I relentlessly defend the people I love and care about. I'm like, oh, geez, well, relentlessly. <laughs> and then it's like, I will go out of my way. No one can stop me from giving back to others. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Some people could probably stop me. And then it's like, I'll do anything to, you know, do give to charity and do all the good things in this world. I'm like, God, man, that's, I, I it's not just like a little bit. There's, there's people out here that are, Really dying on this hill. I, th I think you you were saying that you felt like it was uh, uncomfortably self-reflective, so uh, you didn't like that at all. <laughs> and I, I had to sit here next to him as he tried to wrestle through and explain and rationalize each answer. He goes, well, I, I care about people, but do I care about them relentlessly? I'm like, yeah, I was like, God, all these adjectives making it hard, Tyler. So, I hey, Tyler, I want to go back to how you got into being interested in Enneagram. Yeah, well, I saw a friend... Uh, using it and it looked kind of like a, a pentagram it looked a little suspicious you know i did some research on it and looked into it and i did the same thing as saying right took a test and immediately as i started to get into it started to feel whoo started to feel um like somebody was uh you know reading my mail and yes through that process uh started to continue to get into it and really found it highly encouraging uh, and affirming, um, but also extremely challenging, more challenging than the Myers-Briggs or StrengthsFinder. Uh, and so the Enneagram really gets at your your motivations behind, you know, what you do. And so it's very deep. Uh, it, sometimes it takes a little while for you to find your type because uh, it is looking at those inner motivations. And sometimes we're not aware of why we do what we do, uh, which is super important to the topic of decision making, which we'll be talking about today, because it uh, the inner motivations affect decision-making. And oftentimes it's like a software running in the background that you can't see. So when you looked at that, you know, you, you said you felt like it was sort of like a pentagram. I mean, did you, did you begin to research that and look at the background of where it came from? Uh, I did a deep dive and I'm actually coming out with an e-course on the origins and history of the Enneagram, uh, because I think that's important. Some people say it's an ancient tool, uh, I don't believe it is an ancient tool. It's really a product of the 1960s uh, by the uh, created by a guy named 
Oscar Ichazo. And so he was overlying personality insights. He was a psychologist uh, overlying personality insights during the same time Freud uh, was sort of doing his work. And uh, he he overlaid it onto a nine point symbol, which is where we get the name Enneagram. Enneagram just means a nine point diagram. Uh, so it really is not an ancient tool, but really was developed in uh, the 1960s. Uh, Why do people the, think it's an ancient tool if that's not true? Because some of the Enneagram is pulling from ancient sources. Uh, and so there's some people think it's Christian uh, because of a guy named Raymond Lowell and others uh, who uh, developed some vices and virtues. Uh, the Enneagram also has like the seven deadly sins plus two to, to get to nine overlaid on, on each of the types. Uh, so there's some ancient things that are overlaid onto the modern Enneagram. Um, but from my research, it was not something that was developed centuries ago that's been inherited and passed down through the ages. Yeah. The, a lot of that stuff, you know, they, they talk about things that are, you know, coming from the ancient, but I, I mean, I guess everything comes from the ancient. If you There's trace no it new ideas. Yeah. There's no new ideas anymore. <laughs> having, having a nine point diagram doesn't make the it shape ancient. is certainly ancient. Well, we'll give them that one circle yep. with a square and triangle. So, so some people think it's Christian. Some people thought it was pagan, Cultic, satanic, and you know, yeah, exactly. So, so I had read that it was a guy named George Gurdjieff back in the 1900s or so, 1916 or something like that. He came up with the symbol, but there's a lot of confusion around the symbol. The symbol was uh, designed by him to interpret all of life. Uh, it was kind of like uh, you know how you know in leadership programs, we use the triangle and we can overlay all kinds of, you know, three different ideas onto it to be comprehensive. And, you know, we can use shapes to um, illustrate things. He was taking the Enneagram and using it as a way to understand all of life. And so he put the musical octaves around the diagram and a whole lot of other things, but it was not a personality tool. Um, he had the closest it became a personality tool for him was that he put a chief feature on all the nine points. Uh, one was like, you know, a person who acts like an idiot, <laughs> uh, someone who is a compulsive liar. You know, it was very negative. That's the closest he got to, uh, you know, a personality tool. Um, but it was really a Chazo that the one that, that applied his personality insights to that Gurdjieff's diagram and turned it into uh, a personality tool. But even Echazo didn't believe that you were one of those numbers or one of those points. Um, it was Naranjo who learned it from Echazo. Naranjo was a Chilean uh, who studied in Ivy League schools in America and was at some of the leading institutions in America learning about personality in the 1960s and 70s. And um, Naranjo is the one that came up with the Enneatypes that said you could be a type one, a type two, a type three. And uh, so he's really the one that uh, developed it into a personality tool. Uh, and then the Jesuits, uh, uh, one of the a couple of the Jesuits learned it from Naranjo, and then they went and taught it to Loyola, the school at Loyola. And uh, a lot of the Jesuits got a hold of it. And then from there, it just became publicized. And then, you know, in the 90s, the Stanford Graduate School of Business launched its first course on the Enneagram uh, called Personality, Self-Awareness, and Leadership. Uh, and then, you know, the U.S. Postal Service has used it. The Vatican has used it. Chick-fil-A has used it with their, their corporate exec team. The CAA, I've heard, has used it to understand the personality of terrorists. So 
a lot of uh, people have picked up and have been have been using it. So do you think this split between Naranjo and then the you know, some members of the church using it, do you think that's where that belief sort of began to start with some people saying it was satanic, some people saying, no, it's, it's based on Christianity? Uh, are they looking back to that, that division there? Uh, there's some there's some questionable things that Ichazo and Naranjo said that made people think that it uh, came from spirits or demons, and so that's that's sort of the conversation you know that's that's good to be had to to figure that out. So uh, Oscar Ichazo, they said received it from an archangel named Metatron, uh, <laughs> which sounds like a transformer, uh, but he actually came out in a letter. Uh, that I found, um, and he's denied it and said, no, I don't know where that rumor came from, but I did not get it from uh, an archangel or any sort of thing like that. Naranjo uh, later on claimed that he got it through automatic writing, that he got the Enneatypes mm-hmm. from automatic writing, which is sort of a new age way of sort of channeling your inner conscience, like conscience, like channeling um, things from, from within and writing it down on paper. And some automatic is, is writing. That so, is that sort of like a free flow? So if I'm just sort mm-hmm. of getting into a different consciousness and I'm just writing what comes to mind, yep. right? Or yep. letting letting the spirit come through me or a spirit come through me, is that is that make it satanic? Does that make, does the church see that as a bad form of expression or creativity? Yep. The church is, and other Christians uh, have taken that that one line that was off the cuff from an Aranjo in a June t- 2010 interview on YouTube, uh, they've taken that and sort of twisted it and distorted it. Um, cause one, he never said that he got it from a demon or spirits. So that's, that's one, you know, thing there that's important to know. Uh, we don't know what he meant by automatic writing. Um, yeah. it's very, it's much more likely that, you know, he sat down and through meditative practice, you know, got out on paper what was already inside. Um, and the, th- the curious thing is he never said that and never claimed that until 40 years after teaching the Enneagram. Uh, so it was very, it was off the cuff in one interview. It was decades after he had taught it. No, he had never told anybody that before. And so even Enneagram, ex- Enneagram experts like Beatrice Chestnut, who's not a Christian, uh, says that she doesn't believe that um, he got it from spirits uh, and thinks that he was just kind of making a, a kind of a smart comment off the cuff. Uh, but all the, all the evidence points to the fact that he didn't get it just out of thin air, but that he got it from his extensive, uh, research. I mean, he was a medical doctor and he was a study of, you know, he studied personality in Ivy league schools in America. So it's, it's hard to believe that he would have got it out of thin air from, you know, a spirit much more likely. I, I don't that he got I really understand research. the mindset of some Christians who, make such an effort to avoid everything that they deem pagan or satanic. Um, you know, Christmas trees are pagan and Halloween's pagan and everything is pagan. Monster drink. Yeah. Monster. Oh, have you seen that, <laughs> I have video? Seen that video? Oh man. Harry, Harry Potter books. Harry Potter. Harry Potter books are pagan and everything's the peace sign. I heard the peace sign was a broken cross. Oh God. Yeah. What do we believe? What do we believe about God? What, what, what do we believe about God if, if all of these things are so evil and need to be avoided? I mean, you know, I think that puts God in a, a really weakened 
state and viewpoint to say, oh, I'm serving this, this all powerful, omnipotent, omniscient God. But you know, if I have a Christmas tree in my house, he ain't going to be able to help me anymore. They're sneaking in with Halloween on me. Come on guys. (laughs) You know, give, give give our guy some credit. (laughs) (laughs) The JK Rowling said that she's never, never met a kid who has read the Harry Potter books that turned into a witch or practice witchcraft. Unfortunately, <laughs> I really, what? I what? I was trying so oh. hard when those books were out. I mean, I was all, I almost ran into a brick wall at a train station <laughs> to try to get, you know, it's like, to see if it worked. If I believe hard enough, man, I can start <laughs> when guardian Liviosa and some people, <laughs> it didn't work. So I, I'm kind of with you. Sometimes there are those, or over the top on just sort of criticizing stuff. Yeah. And I think you want to look at things on their face value. You know, is this, is this a tool that gives me the ability to assess uh, tendencies or personality tendencies or we should be judging um, yeah. the, the outcome, not necessarily the, the motive for the creation of whatever it is that we're deeming to be pagan. Right. I mean, what's, what's the outcome? What's the worst possible thing that's going to happen about me understanding personalities a little bit better? Right. Yeah. The well, outcome. Now, if if the outcome is bad, then maybe you can also point to the origin and say, well, hey, the origin is pagan and the outcome's not good. So we're we're over two here. You should probably avoid that. And I'm going to listen to that. If you say, um, well, the outcome's fine. I got no problem with the outcome, but the origin's awful and evil. Well, right. now I'm I'm not so convinced. Yeah. So what the Enneagram for people that don't know now, how is it used today? Yeah. Well, Naranjo was, he thought the Enneagram, it was not some sort of holistic religious worldview that he was pushing on people. He thought of it as a tool and he was grateful that psychologists could use it. Therapists could use it in their practice. He was happy that the Jesuits were using it in their religious worldview. He was just happy that other people were, were using it. And so What's, what's really helpful about the, the Enneagram is that, it, again, it, it gets at your core desires, your core fears, um, those types of things that aren't so on the surface. And when, once you start to understand why you do what you do and why other people do what they do, uh, it can, it can on, a, on a team, on a business team, it can lead to greater unity, greater empathy towards one another. And really greater productivity as you understand your strengths and your weaknesses. So it's a tool to understand the personality differences that each of us are uniquely blessed with or cursed with. Well, I I think, isn't it based a lot on what are these different personality types or characteristics? uh, What do they fear? What are their motivations? In other words, what's sort of driving these different personalities? And they happen to divided into nine. Okay. There you go. You could quibble on that, whether it ought to be five or 12 or whatever, I guess it doesn't matter. But if, if there's some truth in that and there's something you can learn from how you tend to strive to uh, avoid certain things or engage with certain things based on this characteristic, I think that that's probably helpful. Very helpful. And think of the, the paint swatch or all the paint colors in Home Depot you know, you have your primary colors, and then you have a lot of different colors that you can mix to create different shades and hues. And so the Enneagram doesn't say that God or 
just people that only happens to be nine types of people. Uh, there's there, the nine actually can be broken down into 27 types and you can keep creating different colors and, and shades and hues. But the, the Enneagram is a, is a good um, start at looking at nine different archetypes based on yeah core, core fears, core desires, um, and core sins, uh, if you will, things that we need to spend more time thinking about than, than other people. Uh, so for me as a type three, uh, I can be very image conscious and think too much about my image, uh, how I look. Uh, I, can, I can bend the truth uh, or be deceitful. I can see patterns of deceit in my past of kind of uh, <clears throat> bending the truth in order to look good. And that informs my decision making. <laughs> you know, as I make decisions, uh, image is always right there. Uh, it's almost like a glasses that you put on and you, you uh, see a lens that you see things through. And so different, the Enneagram helps us to see which lens uh, we're seeing all of life through and to try on other people's lenses to see how they are viewing um, what we're doing in the workplace and um, and how, how they're coming at it. I love that you talk about the the core sins that we can be more inclined to to fall into based on our personality types. I think there's a there's definitely a wave in modern society of of self worship and you know do what feels right, mm-hmm. uh, be yourself, whatever it, whatever you 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 the self are the determining, the arbiter of, of what's good. And, and that's very, very dangerous, right? And, and it impacts our decision-making because if whatever feels right to me and whatever I am kind of inclined to do um, is what's good, then I'm going to do a lot of bad things. And now a lot of people, they hear that and they think, well, okay, so Sanger's talking about drinking if you really want to drink right? Or doing drugs if you really want to do drugs or doing these things that we already know are bad just because the self is telling telling me to do it. That's part of it. But it's also what you talked about, right? Image conscious, being too overtly image conscious isn't something that is necessarily, that's not something that even I don't think the majority of people would say is an obvious bad right? There's, there's some benefits to be, to caring about my image, (laughs) not caring at all is, is no good, but caring too much is vanity, right? And so where's the line? But if I'm the, if I have this natural inclination as a three like you to be image conscious, then maybe I'm going to fall into vanity a little bit too much, or maybe I'm going to fall into deceit to protect an image. And that isn't, that isn't what our modern society is telling us to do. That isn't focusing on our values. That's not focusing on our, our values. Um, or maybe it is focusing on values, but it's certainly not focusing on our, our virtues, right? What virtues are important to us? And we should promote and, and focus on the virtues that we want to emulate most closely, not just the feelings that we have that we want to emulate most closely or the, the perceived values that we want to emulate. The virtue for a type three like myself uh, is truthfulness. So to become less deceitful, less bending the truth, less shape shifting uh, to present the image that I think other people want to to, to see, uh, and to be direct and truthful, to be fully authentic, uh, and that's not very hard for a, like a type eight. A type eight is almost too truthful, 
They are truthful, direct, honest, blunt, and will oftentimes hurt people with their words uh, when they're unhealthy. So that's just a to show you the contrast between how the Enneagram can help us to to pinpoint like which virtue we need to spend more time cultivating uh, and our weaknesses as well. So I I, I want to get your opinion on this, Tyler. I think we focus a lot uh, as a culture on the pursuit of values. Um, and I'm not sure where the line is between values that are, um, you know, self-originating. Like, I, I just really like this thing, right? Like, like I, I've seen people say, well, pleasure is a value of mine. And I go, is it? Like, you know, I, I'm hesitant to tell you that your values are wrong. And maybe it is something that is important to you. It's certainly not a virtue. It's certainly not a virtue. Um, but truthfulness or honesty, that could be both a value and a virtue. So how do we draw the, how do we differentiate? Um, you know, obviously there's a biblical answer to that question. But, but you know, what's a, maybe a more, I don't know, what's your take on where I'm going here? I would even say, I think fun is a is a virtue uh pleasure you know is can be a virtue uh i think you know we want our kids to experience pleasure joy fun you know uh and actually worked with another pastor who who uh wanted fun to be the core value on our team and yeah. another pastor did not <laughs> you know yeah and a lot of churches would look at look at fun as not a virtue something that we'd shouldn't have to consider or work on in the, in the church world. Uh, but we all, we all know overly serious church cultures, church leaders. And so I loved that my friend who is a type seven uh, on the Enneagram at sevens uh, have a high need for fun and pleasure and joy uh, to lighten things up, to add humor into the workplace, to make, to make it not so stuffy, but, but enjoyable. Uh, and so I, yeah, I, I think, um, it's helpful to know that, uh, and, and to actually rely on other people and their, the, the virtues that they just kind of naturally kind of ooze out of them and to bring that into the workplace and value all those different lenses and, and virtues that people are bringing. So give, give me a quick rundown kind of, of the, there's, there's nine different types there. Yep. What, what would you say is the overriding, motivation characteristic in each in each one of these what drives each one of these yep. characteristics i can give them in a very quick nutshell and then we can come back around if you want later to talk yeah, about the, how the decision making lens that they they put on so type ones uh, are they called the improvers or perfectionists and so they fear being bad uh, or imperfect uh, they desire that which is morally good and right uh, they focus on what needs improving, and they avoid making mistakes at all costs. Uh, type twos uh, are the helpers or befrienders. Uh, they fear being personally rejected. Uh, they fear being useless. Uh, they have a need to be needed. Uh, they have a desire to be loved and wanted. Uh, they focus on the needs of others, not their own needs. So they oftentimes avoid their own needs and desires because they're always thinking about other people. Uh, type threes are the achievers and performers. Uh, they fear failing. Uh, they fear being worthless, and oftentimes their work and their achievements give them worth externally. Uh, their desires for success uh, and admiration 
and they focus on image, like I talked about before, and goals uh, to help them be successful. And they avoid failure at all costs and inefficiency. Uh, type fours are the hardest to wrap your mind around. Oftentimes they're the artists uh, or therapists among us. Uh, they fear, they're, they're called the individualists or romantics. Uh, they fear being flawed or inadequate. Uh, oftentimes they feel like they were born with manufacturer defects, like there's just something missing. Uh, they're not whole. Uh, they desire to be unique and special. Uh, they focus on what's missing and they avoid the common, ordinary, and the mundane. Uh, so type fives uh, are the investigators and observers. Uh, so they fear uh, being ignorant. Uh, they they want to know their stuff. Uh, they don't like being invaded uh, or inter- intruded upon uh, because they want to protect their personal space and energy. Uh, they desire to be comp- capable and competent. Uh, they focus on accumulating knowledge and they avoid being uninformed or, like I said, intruded upon. Type sixes, uh, this is my wife. Uh, they are the loyalists or the sometimes called the devil's advocate. Uh, so they have a fear of being without support and guidance. They desire safety and security above all. Uh, they focus on what could go wrong. So they're great risk assessors uh, and they avoid uncertainty and vulnerability. And then type sevens, uh, we talked a little bit about these guys. They're the enthusiasts. Uh, So they fear being deprived uh, or trapped. Uh, They desire happiness and satisfaction. They focus on what's next. They're always planning the next fun adventure, the next fun thing. Uh, And they avoid uh, pain and suffering uh, at all costs. The type eights are the challengers, the defenders. Uh, They fear being weak uh, or controlled. Uh, Sometimes you know you're an eight if you... Uh, if you just hate being controlled uh, by other people, try to avoid it like the plague. Uh, Their desires for power, protection, and influence. Uh, They focus on taking charge. They don't really like falling in line, but taking charge. And they avoid looking weak or being vulnerable. And then the type nines are the peacemakers and mediators. Uh, They fear being in conflict. They don't like their peaceful life disrupted. And they fear being invisible, overlooked by others. Uh, their desires, peace and harmony. Uh, they focus on expectations of others. So I'm just going to do my job and do what's expected of me so I can maintain peace and harmony. Uh, and they avoid conflict at all costs. Uh, and they avoid discomfort. They like living a comfortable, peaceful life. And so that is a quick overview of all the types. Wouldn't you agree that the number three is the best one? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> that, I'm interested to know I'm with you. if, if any I, of them I resonated so. with you. We're in unanimous agreement. I, I, on that. Think, I think between the three of us, we can agree that the three is the best. I think three is is the most valued in our culture. I think America is more has a three culture, and so Definitely. I think threes just get propped up. Like, oh, you're deceitful, or you've been the truth. Yeah, but you're really productive. <laughs> you know, you really help our company, and so I think threes just get a little bit of a pass and. Are, yeah, are really, you know, they tend to be the homecoming kings and queens, the, you know, great team leaders. Uh, they're oftentimes admired and get the, the employee of the year. You know, they're, they're just productive, efficient, and so yeah, just highly valued in our culture. Is that because, um, I mean, certainly there's cultures that don't value three, maybe they value others um, higher. I think there's lots that, of people we know that don't value threes. Yeah, losers, <laughs> losers. Um, <laughs> do 
is, is that because, oh, well, we just, I, like a lot of times when people say, oh, well, our culture values this, it, it's almost like a negative lens. I'm not saying that that's what you necessarily meant by that. Um, but a lot of times it's like, oh, well, you know, we're so wrong for, for valuing work ethic, right? Um, and that's usually people who are not threes that are saying that we're wrong right. as a country right. to, to do that. But is that because, oh, well, we just happened to? Or, um, oh, our unique history caused us to that. Or is it the case that more often than not, a culture is going to value leaders. A, a group of people is going to say, well, the leaders are going to, the guys at the top, I guess, they're, they're going to be the ones that that are the most valuable for us. So if you're like them, that, that's good. But I, I think when we look at electing leaders, we elect people <clears> with <throat> with competence, who work hard, who are diligent, who want to lead, who speak a lot and and have those characteristics and sort of, it's a self-fulfilling situation there. Don't you think? I, I don't know if there's an, is there, is there an example of a country that doesn't, or a culture that doesn't value threes or maybe values another? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, Latin America, South America has a very seven culture, very friendly, joyful. You know, they don't care as much about being on time uh, like a three would. A three, you know, okay. that's going to hurt efficiency and productivity. So yeah. seven, it's much more of a, like even Mexico, even, you know, you go south, there's much more hospitality, less of a concern for being on time and productivity. It's more um, family based, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying? And you could go to, to Asia, and it's a very uh, loyal culture, a very six-like culture where you submit to authority. Uh, you're, you're loyal to your family and friends. Family comes before career. You know, oftentimes in America, careers are valued over family. Like you can sacrifice your, your time with your kids in order to, to get ahead. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, you can go almost continent by continent and start to see some so things here. So there are places where that, you know, organically a culture develops and has a robust history and success and vibrant culture. And they just didn't get there with the threes leading the way. I wonder why that developed. Cause I'd never thought about that before, but obviously, I think you're right. Obviously I'm, we're a little biased. We're like, how could you, how could you be successful without the threes? Um, how could you be successful without the achievement and the leadership? I mean, right. And I, and I think those other cultures are probably equally annoyed. Oh, for sure. By cultures that are less hospitable, you know, hospitable or less uh, family oriented or, you know, less, uh, you know, driven to follow the crowd or, you know, whatever it is. I'm sure they look at us and go, how do they survive in a situation like that? That's yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about it that way. When I think when going back to a three, because I am a three, the you talked about deception. And I think the risk that I, I find is that a lot of times in decision-making, I will have self-deception. I have to fight against that. Sanger probably has that too, but just doesn't, he deceives himself and doesn't realize he does. <laughs> not aware of it. Just not aware of it. But I think when, you know, that's a big thing to overcome when we talk about decision-making is that it, that I've got to make sure that I'm not over assessing my competence or avoiding things I should be listening to shutting things off, I think is probably equally risky. Yeah. The tip that I give for threes is don't let your need for speed and efficiency keep you from listening to others and doing proper risk assessment. Threes are like airplanes. We like to go fast. Uh, we like to go over people. Uh, <laughs> we don't like yeah. when people are slowing us down. So I'm, I'm married to a six. And so she's the most, risk assessment um, prone uh, kind of personality. Mm -hmm. 
And so she's always pointing out, hey, what this could go wrong. This could go wrong. And uh, one example is I got stranded on the, the side of the interstate once driving her car because she kept telling me, hey, you know, it's time for an oil change. You got to take it in. And I was working, I, you know, I'm always working. Uh, and I was like, I don't have time to do that. And then took it and then ended up on the side of the, the interstate uh, with the engine smoking. And that's just a great example of how threes, if we don't slow down and listen and do risk assessment, even though it feels like we're not going to get ahead and we're going to sink and we're not going to achieve results, we got to slow down. We got to listen. We got to do proper risk assessment in the decision-making process and got to listen to my wife, listen to those sixes uh, if we're going to actually be productive and not you not have blowups and breakups you know, in our life. What caused you or motivated you to do what you're doing. I think what you're doing, Tyler, is very unique. I never, I've heard of the Enneagram all the time, right? I feel like Enneagram enthusiasts are almost like vegans. Like they're going to tell you <laughs> about it before you ask. I didn't ever, I had not taken the, this assessment until we got connected with you, but I was always told what I was. I was told that I was a three, you know, by my cousin who was like super into it. She was always telling me, well, you're this way because of this and that. And these are your numbers and your wings or whatever that was. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay. That goes against my Enneagram ethics, you know, to <laughs> tell people what they are. You know? yeah. <laughs> oh, she's it, all it over is, the place. It's supposed to be a self-validating tool. Like you're supposed to go through it. You know, sometimes tests are inaccurate. So I created a self-typing guide so that people could walk through it and then, and then say, yeah, this is the one I resonate with the most, you know, rather than having and somebody tell you which, what you are. Yeah, it's very, very helpful, right, to kind of go, okay, well, I haven't been assigned something. Like for, for me, I did, you know, a kind of assessment, and then I got like three or four ones that were all at the top. They were all tied up uh, as far as percentages on the assessment that it still said, well, hey, you're, you're probably a three. Well, I don't know. Do I? I don't know. Am I like sure? All the other ones are even scores, but I had never met anyone or heard of anyone that's doing this specifically to tailor the message of the gospel based on Enneagram. I find it very fulfilling, both in the church world and not in the church world. So more recently, I've been doing trainings in the business world and just love seeing the aha moments and love seeing the light bulbs kick on and uh, being able to facilitate yeah, greater empathy. You know, so for example, one of the girls came out as a type two. When you talk about the Enneagram, you're talking about probabilities, not absolutes. And so yeah. you can't say, oh, I typed as a three, which means I'm automatically deceitful <laughs> or automatically this or automatically that. That's not, that's absolutes. That's putting yourself in a box. Um, the, the Enneagram says, if you're a type three, here are some probabilities uh, that you need to look at that may or may not be true. And so one of the, you know, there's a high probability if you're a three that you're going to struggle with uh, how you look in your image. And so pay attention to that. Uh, pay attention to that. Uh, and that works in the, the church world and it works in the, in the business world. Uh, and so if, and, and so when I hear people are a type two, a type two or type three or whatever, I can instantly think of some things that would be helpful to pay attention to. And, and for like twos, twos are the most interpersonal personality type. And they oftentimes pursue others. They're like, how can I meet your needs? Uh, they're empathetic um, and they pursue other people. But oftentimes they're the first to initiate and other 
other people don't reciprocate very well. And so, you know, just knowing she's a two, I said to the rest of the team, hey, she's probably the one that sends out the text messages that that asks you to go out to eat, grab lunch. Uh, She would love it if you pursued her and you took the initiative to pursue her because she's highly relational. Uh, me, a good day for me is getting, is accomplishing things off my tasks and accomplishing my goals. That's what a good day feels like. People often, people meetings oftentimes feel like an interruption uh, to me achieving, but for twos, if they don't, unless they have meaningful interactions with people throughout the day, it wasn't a productive day. Uh, And so just encouraging the team, Hey, pay attention. Remember that she's a human being, not a human doing. So pursue her. Uh, take her out for lunch that would she would feel very loved and you know she's almost crying she's like yes that's that's what i want you know and so those are the types of conversations that you know we have even in the business settings that i've been in recently and i just love it i just feel like light light bulbs turn on and people see each other in a new light and are and are continue to talk about it for months after after the training so so are you focused mostly on the how to help churches, church organizations use this within their organization or you're tailoring the gospel to, to the individual based on their personality type? Uh, Both. Uh, But the substantial part of my work has been writing books. And so I'm coming out with my sixth book uh, next month, which would be November uh, 2022. And that's specifically for type twos. And so I've written a hundred, 180 page book for every Enneagram type. And so it's a 40 day devotional. And so that's geared towards the the faith uh, community. Um, but in the, in the book, I taught, I say, here's, here's where your strengths uh, and your desires are affirmed by God. And here's where you need to be challenged. Uh, here's where the gospel challenges um, your core sin and all these things. And uh, so I take people on a 40 day journey and I, I pull from 20 different Enneagram sources that are both Christian and non-Christian and pull from 20 of the leading resources out there and then uh, just apply God's word to affirm and challenge over the course of 40 days. And uh, that's just what I love. I, I love that it can be very contextualized. Uh, again, not just a fluffy devotional that's sitting on a shelf at Barnes and Noble that just, you know, may resonate with everybody. A little bit, yeah. Um, but to be, but to be very strategic and get very specific, and to say, here's how you need to be affirmed and challenged with your image issues. And so, it's I love being able to be very concrete and very specific and helping people. And so, I've, I'm working my way through all nine books, and I've got six done now. Um, but I'm also starting to do more uh, work outside of the church world with with like business teams, like I said. So, a little bit of both. Yeah, the I think that it's great what you're doing with the church. I mean, I think it's great that you're broadening it to tailor the gospel based on the Enneagram to me was really, really cool. It kind of made me think why, why is this not already being done 10 times over? Um, I, I, it's not uncommon at all for people to have an experience growing up in the church and feel like this is just speaking a different language for me. You know, they're going to a church that um, maybe their parents picked because it, unknowingly um, spoke to their Enneagram type and the church leadership spoke to, spoke to the seven, you know, it's a fun church and they're partying all the time. Like, like uh, the one you were talking about earlier and uh, little kids of three going, why is everyone, why is everyone playing around in youth youth group? (laughs) I don't like this. (laughs) That was my experience in youth group. A lot was we're we're playing games a lot. Um, I'm not really that fun. 
(laughs) (laughs) You know, like I I think it's a great thing to say, hey, this is is how you can focus on your unique struggles and your unique strengths. So I love that. Yeah, I want to write a book someday for pastors on how their personality can make or break their ministry because, you know, they have a lot of power to influence a culture. And like I said, sometimes the church is too fun. Uh, sometimes the church is too serious. Uh, yeah. Sometimes the churches, the mega churches in particular, can get too practical and pragmatic, and uh, and doing too many practical things that there's not there's not a focus on the becoming whole and therapy and counseling and you know working on some of those deeper issues that oftentimes fours can bring to the table. And so I think we can. Yeah, use the Enneagram as a way to, to see how can we become more, what are we missing? You know, how can we become more comprehensive and whole? And uh, if that makes sense. You know, when we think about decision making, I, I think our tendencies, particularly on some of these types, like a three, is to make decisions for groups based on what you feel like is best. And, and sometimes that's that's the right way to go. But I, I think the risk is that the decisions are made absent, uh, really getting information from what the rest of the group might want or what the constituency might, might want. So you end up making suboptimal decisions, even though it's what you, you thought was best based on how you see the world. Do you find that each of these nine types struggle with decision-making frameworks differently? Oh, of course. So for the one, for example, their decision-making lens is, is this a good or bad decision? Meaning like, is it a moral or immoral decision? Is it ethical or unethical? Is it right or wrong? Uh, so they tend to be more black and white. Uh, and they they care about getting it right. Uh, and so the, a decision is bad unless you can get it perfect. And as we, as we know, like I'm working with the type one right now on a lease agreement uh, for another building on our property. And ones can get so caught up on on doing it right and making sure that everything is perfect, that it just slows down the process and, and it never, you can never get it completed. So talking about overdone strengths, that, that goal to make it right and perfect and thorough can actually be a bad decision if it slows down the team uh, and doesn't, you know, it doesn't get them to the goal or doesn't actually get it accomplished. What is the key component in your mind in understanding the Enneagram and how it impacts decision making. Like I, I feel like a lot of people that I know, um, they understand the Enneagram. Oh, this is what I do, this is what I do, this is my strength. Um, how can we take that next step and go, okay, and now on decision making, in the choices that I'm making in my everyday life, um, this is what I need to know about my Enneagram type strengths, weaknesses, et cetera, to really be able to apply it to a decision making framework that works. Yeah, they could just take the the things that I said before the core fears, the core desires, and then just work them out in how they might play out in decision-making. So for twos, for example, they have that desire to be loved and wanted. And oftentimes they're the biggest people pleasers on the Enneagram. And it won't say anything negative because if I say something negative or give hard truth, then they're going to reject me. So I got to be nice. I can be the nice girl, the nice boy and not say anything. But as you guys, as you guys know, that can lead to some really bad decisions if what you really want is people's approval and affirmation and can't let anybody down, uh, that's going to, yeah. that's going to make you stand in the way of making hard decisions and firing people when, when it's hurting the team. And so that's an example of how one's that core desire to be liked can actually lead to bad decisions or not making hard decisions. 
Yeah, the struggle I think that a lot of people have is, you know, avoiding um, or pursuing unknowingly what their natural personality type or Enneagram type will pursue and not seeing the consequence of that, right? So I'm going to people please because I'm naturally going to people please. And then I realize later on down the road that I've sacrificed my own wants and desires by not voicing my opinion because I wanted to keep the peace. Or like threes will pursue image and achievement and then later on down the road realize, oh man, I, I really neglected the relationships that are important to me because I was focused on my own, yes. uh, my own wins. In the decision-making, in the, in the front end of that, right, if we can be more aware of those um, the pitfalls that we might uniquely find ourselves in, what's the next step to making better choices? Because a lot of times I think people will go, oh, well, I'm a people pleaser. And I know that sometimes that might mean that I you know, don't voice my concerns enough. So I'm just going to start voicing my concerns. <laughs> I'm going to start being the opposite of myself. And that's not good either, right? We can't just say, oh, well, my Enneagram type is all negative. And so now I'm going to be the opposite of myself. Um, but we also can't just completely embrace with no fear of the negative consequences or pitfalls either. Yeah, I, I think I see what you're saying. I try to lead out with affirmation and encouragement, by the way, in the books that I write and uh, I think that's really important is starting to with a place of affirmation because how we're wired, how we're created is beautiful. It's special. It's, it's unique. It's, we are needed by the people in our lives. And so there's just a lot to affirm. And I think the Enneagram helps, helps with that. I think the Enneagram also helps build teams being more inter- interdependent. It, it helps sh- show your need for other people. Uh, so, for example, like the the fives, their decision making lens is logic and rationality. Uh, so, you know, what does the facts say? Um, that's all I trust. I don't trust feelings because they can be wishy washy, and uh, you can use emotions to mani- manipulate people. So, what do the facts say? And they tend to make decisions based on like what's the most logical way mm-hmm. to go about this. What's the most rational decision? But then, when they're unhealthy, they can neglect people's feelings altogether not take feelings into account, thinking of ourselves as like thinking, thinking heads on a stick rather than actually emotional feeling creatures, you know, that aren't robots. Uh, and so if, if a five just knows that, but I usually come at things from a very logical, rational perspective, I might pull this friend or this coworker or this family member to help, you know, help me to add feelings to my decision-making process to know that feelings do matter. And, uh, you know, and if people are upset or people are hurt, like that, they might leave your team. They might leave the organization. Like there is, that's not rational to, to not take those things into consideration. And so I think yeah. the Enneagram just helps you to pull people in to say, help me, like, help me see it, help, help me to see things through your lens. And that's what uh, we should all be doing, right? Is yeah. affirming the unique gifts that each other are blessed with and, and, and not doing what is particularly threes or uh, likely to do and say, Hey, well, this is obviously the best. This is obviously the best. And if you're not doing that, doing it my way, uh, you're wrong. If you're not motivated by the things I'm motivated for, you're wrong. But, but all, I, I think all types tend to do that. All people have a tendency to say, well, what's important to me, what is natural for me is, is clearly of higher value, um, than what is natural for you. Um, and 
if we can affirm each other and say, man, that's a, that's something special that you're bringing to the table, Tyler. That's something that you're special. You're bringing to the table, Sean. And we love that. I need that because that's not how I am. Um, then we'll be, we'll be a lot better off. I, I think what you're doing is great. Where can people find your new 40 day devotional? All those books are on Amazon, but you could just find them through my website. The link's there. So gospel uh, for So it's gospel F O R Enneagram.com. Uh, or if you just search for my name, Tyler Zach, Z A C H, um, should be able to find my website. I knew it wasn't Zach. <laughs> yeah, it's like I knew it couldn't the musician be Bach. That's B A C. Yeah, there you Zach. go. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> I didn't know if it was like a new age. You know, I go by my first and middle name. <laughs> no. Type thing. Oh, also right. on Instagram too. That's what, kind of where the party's at. That's where uh, I put out free content. I like long form content, so not just like quick little slides. But I, you know, every week I produce a lot of content that I keep keep compiling from Enneagram resources to put out really valuable content for people that's free. And so they can find me on Instagram, which is, it's the handle is gospel for Enneagram. There's about 40,000 uh, followers on there engaging and talking about uh, the Enneagram. And so that's a great place to keep learning as well. Well, thanks for being here, man. Uh, I appreciate it. I learned a lot. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you sharing your, your wisdom with us. Yeah, I love what you're doing. Keep, keep up the good work. Thanks, man. You know, my takeaway from our talk with Tyler is really around taking the fears into consideration uh, but you have to know what your your baseline fears are first. And so it's really around understanding yourself and being able to see what are the downsides to what I might think is a morally uh, righteous position. You know, so in other words, if I, if I tend to uh, be welcoming and inclusive for all people, that's a morally good situation to be in. But if I fail to see what the downside might be in a decision, then I may not make the best decision. So I have to look at myself and be aware enough of what my uh, tendencies are and look at what are the possible failures in decision making. So that's that's what I took away from our talk. My takeaway is that every culture or individual with a particular Enneagram type personality type tendency is going to be tempted to view others who don't value the same things negatively. And uh, we can see that in the way other countries view our country. We can see that in the way our country views other countries. And I can see that in the way that I judge other people for not um, living by my standards and doing things my way and, and choosing to pursue the things that I would pursue or value the things that I would value. And, and that's not helpful because that doesn't edify them. It doesn't allow those people within my own life to be the best version that they can be. Um, so I think that we could all do a little bit better of, of encouraging others to live out what their unique strengths are. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. 
Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.